Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You've heard us say it before. The 2020 presidential election was met with record voter turnout. Several states across the country made it easier for Americans to cast their vote amid the deadly coronavirus pandemic. The entire system of elections in the United States is for the most part set around the whole construct of having all the foxes guard the hen house. Because if all the foxes are guarding the hen house, then they're not going to let some other fox go grab those eggs. And so understand there's a context to elections that in most cases, in most places, works very well because you've got strong partisans from both sides or multiple sides. Welcome to Dead Men Don't Vote. So we're here to ensure the right to vote will be preserved. The podcast where you, the American voter, have the opportunity to understand how elections really work and how you can help improve the process and restore confidence in American democracy. We will interview leading election experts, explore election controversies, and demystify election administration. From voter registration to ballot casting and counting, results reporting, and on through to certification and audits. We'll answer all your burning questions. Is vote by mail safe? How are foreign countries trying to interfere in our elections? And yes, do dead people actually vote? And we hope you will listen, like the future of our country depends on it. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Brexit means Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hello and welcome, I'm Royful Brown, who's actually sat in a rather grey, a very London-like East Bay in California. And today we're joined by Carolina Vigora, who's a historian of ideas, a board member of the Cultural Liberaler Foundation in Warsaw, I butchered that, I'm so sorry, and a fellow at the Robert Bosch Academy in Berlin. She writes for The Guardian and The New York Times, amongst other publications, and she lives in Warsaw and works in Berlin. Carolina, how are you today? Thank you, Royfield, for this perfect introduction, and you you pronounced the Polish name very, very well. 
And I'm very well today. Thank you so much. How are you? I'm not too, too bad. And, and actually, very excited to be speaking to you. Uh, we spoke yesterday, um, just a little bit of a pre-chat, and you talked about the fact that um, you live in Warsaw, but often work, work in Berlin. And um, one of the aspects of this kind of current war, the crisis which is happening in, in kind of Central Europe, kind of impinged on that. You said um, you tried to catch a train last week from Warsaw to Berlin. Could you tell us about that trip? Yes, I actually live uh, partly in Berlin now and partly in Warsaw, mostly in Berlin because of the Robert Bosch Academy Fellowship. And this train, the Warsaw Berlin Express, how it's called, has been throughout the last months the best way, the quickest way also to get to, to my home city, to Warsaw, for example, on Friday night. And it just takes six hours. So if you add all the controls on the airport, if you try to fly, then you will see that going through the airport is, is actually it's, it's five hours. So the train is much cheaper, much more pleasant, and it's usually very, very empty. And now this is a completely different train. You can say this is a women's train. The number of refugees, and when I say refugees, I mean women with children mostly, on this train is just difficult to describe. If you come from Eastern Europe, like me, you remember the 80s and the 90s, which were the time when you wouldn't expect the Polish trains to function well properly. So you would expect that there would be crowd of people on the train. And I remember such trains from my childhood. But this, what I saw last week when I was traveling from Warsaw to Berlin, was something I have never seen in my life. So you have this incredible number of women with small children that do not have a space and do not have a place. And yet they are all very determined to go further. Because in Poland, there is almost 2 million refugees from Ukraine. And some of them think, well, this is too crowded. We have to go further. So they take the Warsaw Berlin train. And I must say, it was heartbreaking. Because those children, after often five days of travel, and their voices, I am a mother myself. So for me, the voice of a child that cries after five days of travel with this exhausted voice was just heartbreaking. And the faces of mothers, their sadness and their attempts to make the children laugh and their caring for the children, this was all extremely heartbreaking. So you might say for a couple of hours, me and my family, because we were together, we experienced something that is going on in Europe right now and is going to change Europe, probably forever. Before we go on to how this is going to change Europe forever, because I most wholeheartedly agree with that statement, please explain to us how Poland is being able to cope with having 2 million refugees suddenly come across its borders. So suddenly is a very good word. And also the behavior of Poles is quite a surprise for many. Because many people now ask, how is it possible that the country that used to be the number one in not accepting refugees, and we can talk later about the 2015 Syrian uh, refugees coming to Europe and Poland uh, very strongly saying no, 
we are not going to take anyone. And then this country, almost overnight, changes into a country which is number one in welcoming the Ukrainian refugees. So it's a surprise to many. This is something which is really making a huge impression, not only on me, but also on other observers. So this is very grassroots. People are engaged uh, with their private means. They make sandwiches, they cook soup, they bring clothes, they offer their cars, they go to the border, they bring the refugees to bigger cities. They, last but not least, offer their private homes so that a mother with children, um, some elderly woman, um, or perhaps uh, children and can, can find shelter. Some people who are not able to take people, they, they invite animals because this is something that we rarely talk about. People fleeing from war also take the animals with them. So it's, it's really amazing, this grassroots movement, the citizens, the volunteers that are self-organizing in many, many places in, in, in Poland, on the border, in larger cities, in smaller cities. This is also very moving in a country very much polarized. To explain how polarized this country is, one would have to compare it with the U.S., Let's quickly pause. Your president, uh, Duda, w- was re-elected and, a couple of years ago, and he has somewhat of a nationalistic bent. Andrzej Duda has been re-elected president of Poland in a narrow victory against the mayor of Warsaw. It was by the slimmest margin since the end of communism in 1989. Adam Easton reports from Warsaw. Mr Duda's victory shows there is strong support for his brand of social conservatism and generous state handouts. This devout Roman Catholic said he would defend traditional Polish families, both from what he called an imported LGBT ideology bent on sexualizing Polish children and financially through the government's generous welfare benefits that have helped lift many families out of poverty. He also supports the government's moves to increase its control over the media and the judiciary, which the EU says have undermined the rule of law. The next general election is in three years' time, so the government can now implement its programme unhindered. It was a narrow victory, but with its ally now back in the presidential palace, the government can continue its controversial changes to the judiciary, which may further strain its relations with the EU. But the support for the more progressive mayor of Warsaw, Rafał Czaskowski, shows that many Poles are uneasy with what they see as attacks on pluralism and democracy. They want a Poland more open to the outside world and taking a more productive role in the EU. In a truncated campaign, Mr. Czaskowski came close to victory. His career may yet reach new heights. You talked about how polarised sections of Polish society actually are. And this also led to, um, if I'm looking at some of your writings, your surprise as to how generous the outpouring of support that um, Poles have actually showed to the Ukrainian refugees. Um, Can you give us some kind of sense of what exactly happened with that kind of Syrian crisis? And then reflexively, how different the response has been now and give us some of the reasons why uh, Poles have been so generous now to these refugees, but they weren't before. 
So let's start with 2015, which was a decisive year for uh, my country, for Poland, because because of the unprecedented victory of law and justice, unprecedented because they gained a majority in the parliament that allowed them to create a government not dependent on any other party. So this was unprecedented. And 2015, if you go back a little bit with your memory, you will remember that this is exactly the midst of the Syrian refugee crisis in Europe. So the Syrians are fleeing from Syria, from Aleppo, uh, that was, by the way, also bombed by uh, Putin's Russia. They try to find shelter. And, uh, and, and then this, this crisis hits Europe exactly at the point when Poland has parliamentary election. And this crisis was used by the media that, was, that were friendly to the law and justice party in order to scare the population. The number of anti-Muslim remarks, of anti-Muslim propaganda in those times was just incredible. And you could see, and I was researching on that, how from month to month, the number of respondents that were in opinion polls saying that they dislike Muslims, that they are afraid of Muslims, that they think that the Muslims, Muslims equal terrorists, that the, this number is soaring from one month to another in 2015. So you might say that the Law and Justice Party with the media that were friendly to them and afterwards also with the public media that were taken over by this party after the victory, they managed to scare the Poles. This is one answer, not the last one. I think there are many answers to that. Now, when I look at what is happening right now, I sometimes think that we have been, as a society, waiting for a chance to show that we can also behave differently. Many, many people were quite ashamed of how we have refused to help the refugees, how we didn't understand their need for help. And some, somehow it, there is this part of the explanation that, that there are people that were waiting to show that they do have open doors and open hearts. Of course, not, not all. Probably a part of this capability of Poles now to see Ukrainians as people like us, probably a part of it also lies in the, the same religion, the same ethnicity, and also a very important part lies in the common history. And this is a history of Poles and Ukrainians, which basically contains about 300 years of being in the shade of Russian imperialism. So the biggest, the most important experience of this region, you might say, is that from time to time, cyclically, Russia wakes up. And when it wakes up, it swallows the neighbors, it destroys. And it takes away the sovereignty and it takes away the possibility of self-determination of a given society. This is probably the crucial point. In a way, in the fate of Ukrainians today, we see ourselves from the past, but also, which I find extremely important, we also see our potential future. And this is something not only Polish, because when you hear the 
politicians from the Baltic states. For example, Prime Minister from Estonia, Ms. Kaya Kallas. You will see that everybody in the region shares the same fear. Ukraine is today and tomorrow the rest of us. I want to kind of explore this line that Poland uh, treads between being a member of the EU but being somewhat sceptical, but being a robust member of NATO. Let's go back to 1999 and Poland re-emerges um, after the shadow of communism very much as a Western state. Fireworks lit up the night sky in Poland, the third of the Eastern Bloc countries to join NATO. As the NATO flag was raised, it signaled another stage in the harmonization of Europe. Another fanfare to welcome the improbable migration from communist dictatorship to fully-fledged democratic member of NATO. The reactions were overwhelmingly positive. NATO is protecting uh, people that are, that are good and fighting against Oto dzisiaj marzenie stają się rzeczywistością. Oto dzisiaj Polska wraca do europejskiej rodziny. Polki, Polacy, Europejczycy, witajcie we wspólnej Europie. Newspapers across the board heralded the new dawn in Europe. So 1999, Poland joins NATO. 2004, it joins the EU. And I said, I want to kind of re really explore this fine line with uh, Poland being the most maybe Eurosceptic uh, nation at the moment, but being a really kind of staunch NATO ally. Previous to it joining these Western um, blocs, was there any discussion of maybe another way for Poland when it got itself uh, rid, rid of communism? Was there maybe, like, let's say, a Finland model? Or was it just a case of the big berries to our east? Of course, we need to embrace uh, NATO and the EU. The second answer is right. Um, in, in 1989, and basically for the 25 years that followed, there was no other option expressed. Well, of course, perhaps some margins of the political scene. But as for where Poland is heading, and this meant free market economy, integration with European Union, entering NATO, and Western-like democracy, there was no discussion, completely no, 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 no discussion. You, you have to remember that we basically were very busy escaping, escaping from our history. So what I said before, that experience of the region is the instability the fact that the countries are partitioned, that they lose sovereignty. This is probably biggest, the most important experience. It is, it is as if it was printed in our collective consciousness. And it's, it's like beautifully the Czech French writer Milan Kundera once wrote that the little nations from Central and Eastern Europe, they are always afraid because their sovereignty, their existence is being questioned. And the consensus within the political elite, whether this was the post-solidarity elite coming from the former democratic opposition or uh, the post-communist elite, they, they agreed the only way for Poland is the West. So you might say it's like we have all 
mentally emigrated to the West, trying to be as good Europeans as possible. Yeah, you talked about um, sovereignty, and in one of your articles, you said that the the Law and Justice Party like to use that that word um, a lot. Um, Poland is this kind of fiercely nationalist uh, country, you know, embraces NATO, as I said before. Was there any angst uh, to give up some aspects of Polish sovereignty to the EU? You know, did that cause any kind of friction at all? Or was it a case of we need to wed ourselves, embed ourselves into these Western blocks, whether they're economic and military, to be a buttress against a one-day resurgent Russia? So point number one, I would disagree with the sentence that Poland is a fiercely nationalist country. Because, so what do we mean by that? Is it a fiercely nationalist society? Here, I would disagree. You have to remember that Poland is extremely polarized. And if you see the presidential elections, so you have a half of Poles who deeply think that European Union, tolerance, Western-like democracy, pluralism is the way to go. And there is another half that believes this is not a good direction, that we should go into a more nationalist direction. So it's it's very important to remember that. For example, when you compare Poland with Hungary, then you see that the Polish opposition, the liberal opposition is fast and strong, which you cannot say about Hungary because they have a small liberal opposition and they have much weaker liberal media. And so it's as if in Poland, the struggle between the two halves, it's still there. And I'm underlining this because I do believe this struggle is worth fighting and that eventually, I, I hope that democracy and liberalism in Poland will prevail. Now, to, to answer your question about NATO and about sovereignty, because there was a, a consensus that we have to escape by joining the West, there was actually no discussion about it. Some marginal figures and some marginal political groupings might have thought that we should rather not join the EU or the NATO, but it, it was really marginal. I said before that we mentally emigrated to the West. When you are already living somewhere and Poland became a part of the West, then you start to be ever more critical towards this place. And some people used, manipulated with this criticism by saying, well, perhaps West isn't after all such a good way to go. Among them was the Law and Justice Party and Mr. Kaczynski and his uh, acolytes. So they were looking for another model. What other model could be convincing? And the model they found is basically, basically the pre-war Poland, the, the so-called Second Republic, which lasted only 20 years, which was uh, fully sovereign, but at the same time, and this comes in a package, it was also a country which experiencing after only eight years of existence, it ex experienced a, a coup d'etat. It became authoritarian. It was full of nationalism. And, and this comes in a package. I'm afraid that this second software, the software of Second Republic, has been used and it flourished in Poland for the past couple of years. And, and this has created this, this new phase of my country. 
because you've really done a great job of describing and also tapping me over the wrists, actually, with me saying that uh, Poland is this nationalist uh country and of course when Duda came to power it was by the smallest majorities and even the film clip actually said so so I think um, we can look at the headlines all the time and not necessarily actually read the article so if he had the smallest uh, presidential win since post-communist Poland it points to exactly what you said that Poland is this divided country it's been very united with its response to to Russian aggression and unwanting to be a full part of NATO. The U.S. rejected a surprise offer from its NATO ally Poland on Tuesday to transfer fighter jets to an American base in Germany in the hopes of bolstering Ukraine's air force. Washington turned down Poland's foreign ministry after it had announced it was ready to deploy its MIG-29 jets to Rammstein Air Base in Germany and put them at the disposal of the United States. Warsaw also urged other members of the NATO alliance to do the same. Victoria Nuland, a top U.S. diplomat, said the Polish proposal caught Washington by surprise. She told the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, quote, To my knowledge, it wasn't pre-consulted with us that they planned to give these planes to us. The U.S. has sought to speed weapons deliveries to Ukraine, but the Pentagon said flying NATO combat aircraft into the war zone raises serious concerns for the entire alliance. That's what Pentagon spokesperson John Kirby said on Tuesday. It is simply not clear to us that there is a substantive rationale for it. We will continue to consult with Poland and our other NATO allies about this issue and the difficult logistical challenges it presents, but we do not believe Poland's proposal is a tenable one. Russia warned this week that countries offering airfields to Ukraine may be considered a declaration of war. NATO has said it does not want direct conflict with Russia, and the White House has ruled out sending troops into Ukraine to fight. However, the U.S. military announced it would reposition forces to Poland proactively to counter any threat to NATO allies. There has been, uh, Carolina, pre the invasion, uh, more U.S. men and material actually in Poland. Very obviously, Poland um, is one of the frontline NATO states. Yeah, I know there is a small bit of the Russian Federation, uh, Kaliningrad, which borders Poland. And that's before we talk about Belarus, you know, the proxy Russian state. Since the invasion, uh, annexation, sorry, of, uh, of Crimea in, in 2014, did that really reinforce uh, Poland's kind of belligerent attitude towards the Russian Federation and its kind of pro-NATO stance? Poland has had a very pro-NATO stance, I I believe, from the very beginning of our membership. And this comes from um, conviction that only NATO is capable of of helping, of uh, protecting us if the history repeats itself again. I do believe that it has been uh, from the beginning uh, like this. but. one has to see some other component here. Basically, the, the, the recent behavior of Vladimir Putin, as a consequence, a deep understanding and integration and waking up of the Western community. That's, let's call it the West, not only the European Union. But still, even if everybody uh, condemns uh, the, the Russia invasion of Ukraine, 
still there are differences within the, the more Western and more Eastern parts, for example, of the European Union. For example, the West, Western members of the European Union think more in categories of mediation, diplomacy, sanctions, perhaps also military help by sending arms to Ukraine. But in Central and Eastern Europe, it is often less nuanced. So what a, an inhabitant of, of Central and Eastern Europe sees in what is happening now in Ukraine, the immediate reaction is to see Munich 1938. And Munich 1938 um, meant that the war with Hitler was just shifted another year ahead. It was inevitable and it was just shifted one year ahead by Prime Minister Chamberlain. So the Central Eastern Europe uh, observers, the politicians, many intellectuals, they think this is now inevitable. Russia is going forward. The logic of Putin's behavior have, has been obvious for many, many years. It has been obvious since Chechnya, Georgia, Syria, Crimea, everything, and now Ukraine, everything shows that he won't stop. So, so this is perhaps why Poland is so quick to, to, with solutions that perhaps not for everybody seem safe and well reflected on. And I do think that in this situation, uh, and, and we are in a situation in which within 20 days, the whole ge geopolitical order has just changed. You know, many people go on holidays for three weeks, 20 days. So imagine that we have been just away for three weeks. Now we come back and what we see, we see the whole geopolitical order that was created after 1989, after the, the Cold War. It has just disappeared within days. And now in order to create this new order, to think about long consequences of what is happening now, about the long-term view of Russia in the West and the behavior of the West towards Russia, we have to listen to all those voices and look for some compromise. Last question from me before I throw this out to colleagues on stage. You said that, you know, very obviously Poland is on the front line and then sees that a conflict with Russia is inevitable. It's just a matter of time, a conflict between the West and Russia, because we need to check Russian expansion. And very obviously that was kind of expressed through that offer of the, the MiGs to the Ukrainian Air Force. Do, do, do you think the majority of the Polish population share the view that war will happen. Is there any worry that maybe what Russia is going to do is to go and exacerbate those fears maybe by, there was the strike just some 15 kilometers away at a, a Ukrainian kind of supply and military base. Do you think that maybe Russian attacks will get closer and closer to, to the Polish border in a way of trying to provoke some kind of incident? So so it's a multi-part question. A, do you think that Poles really do think that war is inevitable? And then maybe B, do you think Poland would be provoked into some level of attack, which then uh, uh, trigger Article 5 of NATO, which means that um, an attack on one is an attack on all? The answer is yes. Yes, they are afraid. Part of 
this wave of empathy and solidarity, I believe, is also it's fear that this has started again. So this is this fear. And in a way, the empathy towards the refugees is a way to fight our own fears. But the fears are there. Uh, it's um, enough to go to a larger supermarket on a weekend and you will see that the crowds of people buying goods is bigger. It's not panically. It's not full of, it's, it's not like at the beginning of the pandemic of COVID-19 when people were really um, making the shelves empty. No. But you see that there is a, a, a decisive change uh, and that people are afraid. This is the answer number one. The second, I, I think you have expressed it very well. There is a danger that Poland or some other Eastern uh, European country will be provoked and, and does something that will in turn provoke uh, Russia and then the Article 5 uh, will be activated. I, I do believe that this is a danger. And that's why I, I spoke about this exchanging of perspective and discussing this situation before anything, I think anything else apart from the sanctions and sending arms is done. But as we are speaking right now, our prime minister, Polish prime minister, along with the Czech and the Slovak one are in Kiev. And this is also by some diplomats understood as creating a danger for the whole West because nobody knows how this visit will end and how Russia will react to that. Thank you for that. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Uh, Carolina, we have on stage Pavel. Pavel, I know that you're either about to host or are hosting um, some Ukrainian uh, refugees. Pavel, uh, welcome to the stage. Tell us exactly where are you and what you are planning to do, sir? Hello, greetings from Krakow. Yes, uh, the refugee uh, who was supposed to come and stay at my place did not come. I don't know for what reason. 
tell us the reason why you decided to open up your home to refugees and tell us how maybe you've seen your world uh, in Krakow actually change in the last three years, uh, th- three, three weeks, sorry, with this unprecedented wave of refugees which have been streaming into Poland. Okay, so about the motivation, I just have an empty room, so there's no reason why I shouldn't do my part. When it comes to the city, I haven't walked around the city recently a lot. Apparently, the train station is full of people uh, either sleeping on the corridor, sleeping on the floor, or, or waiting for the next train. I think the most interesting stories that I hear are from my girlfriend who works at a chemist's pharmacy. First of all, people started buying iodine in large quantities. Their stock has long been gone. I don't know what it's like in more Western Europe. Other things, basically, the Polish pharmacies are right now supplying the country of Ukraine. So about one third of the patients come from the Ukraine, which leads to some communication problems. Yeah, quick factual check. <laughs> Mrs. Vigura said that the prime minister of Slovakia went to, to Kiev. She obviously meant the prime minister of uh, Slovenia. Slovenia, Slovenia uh, yes. Mr. Jansha. Slovenia, you're right. Sorry for that. Accused of authoritarian tendencies uh, in his own right. Uh, Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that update, Pavel. Hopefully somebody will make use of your kind uh, generosity of a home and safety and sanctuary. David, David Velosko, last time we spoke last week, you were in southeastern Poland, David. Are you still there? Uh, No, no, I have. uh, I just returned home, in fact. Tell us what you saw on the ground and how long were you actually there for, David? Yeah, I was there for a week, primarily spent most of my time speaking to refugees, uh, hosts, people like Pavel, also organizations, aid organizations, people at the the UN and uh, Variety. But but the majority of my time was focused on talking to refugees and uh, also churches, schools who are getting involved with the refugee effort to uh, locate, to host, to feed, to clothe, to provide medicine for these people as they come across the border. One of the things which uh, Carolina said was she described her train journey uh, from uh, Warsaw to Berlin as being a train journey of women and children. Is that really kind of quite manifest that there aren't that many men, that the men are basically staying back in Ukraine to fight? Yes, it's women and children, or sometimes just one or the other. Sometimes it's just children coming over by themselves because their families refuse to leave or because they simply don't have families at this point. Or sometimes it's women coming over by themselves. Sometimes you have families coming over in separate parts, and so they end up in different cities and they have to try to reunite if they can. One gentleman, he had rumor of where his son might be and was headed to that place, hoping that he would find him. But the majority, when you do see men, they're either over 60, I believe, is the cutoff age. They're older or they are disabled and therefore unable to fight. Or sometimes I met a few men who were young and able-bodied, but they had been outside the country during this time, either because of work or some other reason, and they had come to Poland to meet up with their family members who had left Ukraine, and they were sort of uniting there. 
I only met a very few like that, but the ones I did, I did, I didn't know if they had plans necessarily. Uh, one of them had plans to remain together and go on from there. And another family, I believe they were sort of in the middle of, I don't know if I would call it arguing, but they were in the middle of sort of sorting out amongst themselves, whether he was going to go into Ukraine or whether he was going to stay with the family. I think he felt a little bit like he might want to go and the wife didn't want him to do that. But I didn't really, I wasn't really privy to that conversation. So there have been very few, the vast majority you're seeing are uh, women and children. Yes. One last question to you, David. What was the sense of, uh, that people had of how long they might have to be outside of Ukraine? Was it a case of most people said, you know, and then when this is over, I will go back? Or was there, you know, a sense of foreboding that they could be saying goodbye to Ukraine for the last time? A little bit of both. Um, my, I mean, I don't have any anything like statistical data on this. I can just sort of give you a, a very rough anecdotal sense. But insofar as that goes, it seems to be that uh, a lot or maybe even most people want to stay either at the border, which is creating problems for organizations or aid groups or even just individuals who drive from, let's say, Berlin or elsewhere to provide uh, a room in their apartment. And they find that people don't want to go with them either because they don't trust them because you have things like sex traffickers and they've learned this and they're very wary as they come over the border. Uh, they're not very trusting and they indeed should not be because there are real dangers, but also because many of them want to stay on the border because they say that they haven't fully accepted that what's happening yet. One woman told me that, that when I asked her, how does all of this uh, make you feel? And she said, I don't feel anything. Uh, this is a woman who whose village doesn't exist anymore. Her hometown is gone. And I asked, you know, well, why, why do you not feel anything? And she said, I don't, it's just, it's not real to me yet. This is just a movie. Like, how can you tell me my hometown doesn't exist? That just, uh, it's just, it's just not true. And she just was in a kind of fugue state of not fully grasping it yet. It hadn't sunk in yet. And so you have a lot of refugees who are um, either staying at the border, hoping that they will, this will all be over in a week or two and they can go back home or relocating within Ukraine for the same reason. It's just going to be over soon, go back home. They're, they're hoping that it will be over soon. And I do think that there's something of a, of a psychological shift, a sort of depressing acceptance for the ones that do decide to just completely move on, to not only move on deeper into Poland, but to move on to other parts of Europe and beyond because they have completely decided, like, I don't know when this is going to be over or if there's going to be anything to go back to. And those individuals tend to be like they've processed it more and they're more depressed and it's a different mindset. So you do have many who are holding on to hope that just another week. Thank you for that insight, David. Now, good people, it's time for you. If you're in the audience, uh, hold your hand up, hold it up high, come up on stage and ask a question of, of Carolina. First off, I'd like to go to Dr. Dan. I do have a question for uh, Carolina, but others can comment. Uh, Professor, thanks for your time, Rachel. Great um, discussion. My question um, actually uh, is related to the fact, or two parts. One, um, Africans uh, who were at the border had uh, experienced some uh, discrimination, um, and I wanted to get what was the eye or view that folks out in Poland felt about the situation? Was it an issue 
or was it a non-issue and is it an eyesore for public relations from that standpoint? And then the other part will be how you feel about the humanitarian crisis is going um, with regards to the exodus given the crisis that's ongoing. Yes, uh, you're right. The African and not only African, but also Indian refugees from Ukraine did experience some intolerance. Uh, some uh, incidents uh, were recorded on the border. But I have to say I know not enough to talk about details of it. We know that some of the nationalist groups who are also present in, in my country they have been trying to form militias there, claiming that the situation is unsafe and that they have to be there. So this was very worrying. And a lot of uh, activists of um, non-governmental uh, organizations have been warning that the situation might escalate. Luckily, and paradoxically, the government in this situation and I'm saying this about a government which has sympathized with, with, uh, with nationalist groups. This time, the government is not interested in such cooperation. And they have, have been trying to, to, to push those people back, uh, the, the nationalists, I mean. So we have to wait and see. But I, as far as I know, the understanding that there are a lot of students from India and Africa fleeing from Ukraine. The understanding of it is growing. This is something that I try to see realistically, but with hope. Another sentence I would like to add is that I hope that the empathy that is now being shown to Ukrainians uh, who are similar to Poles, who look like Poles, whose language is 70% like Polish, that this empathy will perhaps make us post learn to be more open also for other kinds of refugees when they need our help. This is something I really hope for, that this is not only for the Ukrainians, that when another nation or, uh, or a social group needs help, then we will also have open doors. So I hope to see it as a learning process. Your second question, very important one, is about the humanitarian crisis and how it is being coped with, I have to say no one knows because this is unprecedented since 1945 in Europe. We have not seen such large numbers of people fleeing for several decades. And even in 2015, when a million of people entered Germany, it entered throughout a year. But now almost 2 million entered Poland within 20 days. And it is not only Poland, we have to remember that it's also other countries like Romania, Moldavia, where perhaps less refugees fled. But because Moldavia is so small, every 10th uh, person that you meet in the street right now is a refugee from Ukraine. So this is very serious. And in, in fact, we don't know yet what scope this crisis is going to achieve and how it will be dealt with on a longer term. Thank you so much. Thank you for the question, uh, Dr. Dan. Piotr, uh, you're, you're up next, sir. Yeah, I mean, interesting discussion. Um, I appreciate the Polish perspective. I mean, at this point, what, you know, Poland's received about 1.7 million 
the refugees. And it's something I've been monitoring quite significantly. I guess, you know, my main concern is that it touches upon a little bit about what Dr. Dan was, was talking about as well, um, which is just the Law and Justice Party or the Piss Party are, they're not boding very well for the direction of Poland in the EU. Uh, neither is Hungary under Viktor Orban. And, and, you know, I'm surprised by the response of the Polish government, to be honest, in, in welcoming so many uh, Ukrainian refugees. I mean, yes, there's a lot of brotherly and sisterly overlap, but I'm just curious from your perspective going forward, depending upon how this conflict goes, I don't think it's going to drag on for months. What do you think the, the, the domestic side of this is going to be from the Polish government in the longer term? Are they going to be willing to support the, uh, the, the Ukrainian people? For longer, or if it continue, if we if we do see this uh, conflict protracted, uh, do you think that we're going to see a, a growing sort of unsettled unsettledness amongst certain communities? Because I mean, what some of the eastern towns are already overwhelmed and at full capacity. At least a couple of the mayors I know have said that. So I'm just curious what you think the the party itself could play a role into the uh, into the broader response from Poland. Thank you so much for this question and also for the invitation. I will be delighted to. And as for the question. I think it's very instructive to look at 2015 in Germany. Uh, so let's start with that. As you um, probably remember, in 2015, there was uh, the peak of the refugee crisis in Europe. A lot of Syrian refugees, and not only Syrian, but ma mainly Syrian refugees were looking for shelter in Europe. And some of the countries refused to accept them. Most uh, infamously, Viktor Orban from Hungary, uh, who was doing everything to show to his to his voters, basically, that he uh, muscularly is opposing any refugees, any Muslim refugees. Now, in this situation, uh, Angela Merkel, um, the chancellor of Germany, decided to accept a million of refugees. Uh, this is this this famous quotation from her, Wir schaffen das, uh, which means uh, we will make it, we will be able to make it. As she decided this, it was very controversial at the time, even in Germany. With time, with the years, it has begun to to have a very big symbolical meaning of how Germans have learned from their own history how they were able to turn, to change from a nation that was nationalist, fascist and murderous to a nation that is welcoming and tolerant. But there is all, always a but in social sciences. So 2015 is always is also the year in which the Alternative für Deutschland, the Alternative for Germany party, started to grow and started to have a distinct voice about how some Germans are dissatisfied with this new profile of their country. And AFD, Alternative for Germany, have quite stable electorate of um, 10%. So I think it's very important to remember. Now, as for Poland, what is happening today is called by many people a Carnival of Solidarity. And this is a very important name because actually the carnival of solidarity in our history is the name for what happened in 1980 when the trade union Solidarność was founded and Solidarność 
was one of the factors that led to the collapse of communism in Poland. So when people are saying this, they actually express hope that some good change might come out of this wave of solidarity. And of course, also in the Polish case, there is a but, and there will be a but, because societies do not behave in a uniform way. So looking at the German example, one might think that the next step will be that some of the far-right parties will feed on the dissatisfaction, resentment, connected with the fact that there are new inhabitants and per perhaps they are getting some social uh, financial support. And paradoxically, I don't think this will be law and justice. I think this will be something much more on the far right. And you can see it already that those parties, with the beginning of the crisis, it is as if they lost for a couple of days their reason for existence. So what they are probably try, uh, are going to do is to try to build a rhetoric that will be that will be with, with some negative stereotypes about the refugees, the Ukrainians, etc. So a nationalist rhetoric. I think that we have to, to, to have this as a perspective in mind. I've got a, a quick follow-up. So we touched upon the humanitarian, and I want to switch gears and move to the um, more of the geopolitical law or security. I'm, you know, obviously the, the Polish leader, um, I think he got into Kiev about an hour and a half ago, according to a couple of um, updates I read. Um, and he's obviously been there accompanied by the Slovenian and Czech leaders. I'm wondering whether or not that this could be because they want to try and encourage Zelensky to come to some kind of um, arrangement with the Russians. Um, Zelensky came out earlier, supposedly, and said to the joint expeditionary force that, um, you know, it's likely Ukraine will never be in NATO. And I just want to know from your perspective, what, what role will Poland play in a post-conflict sort of scenario? Not necessarily just reconstruction, but the British have signed this new um, security pact with the Polish and the Ukrainians, and uh, the, the British have also been pushing for the V4, of which Poland is a part of. To, to be sort of a leading uh, set of countries to sort of help prevent the conflict in, uh, ongoing. So I'm just curious what you think Poland's role could be in these various different arrangements and, and as we try to enter hopefully a post-conflict phase. It's a very good question. The problem is that um, whilst this invasion is unfolding before our eyes, it is very difficult to say what is going to happen, not only in a year, but also in a month, right? It's very difficult to say. So I can just say, talk about trends. So generally, if you talk about Central and Eastern Europe, I think this will be the part uh, of, of, of NATO and, and of the, the European Union that will be, as I said earlier, less nuanced. So perhaps making the sanctions much stronger or sending more weapons to the Ukrainians, etc., etc. As for Poland, I am afraid the government, which is very much anti-Russian, and they would really like to play an active role right now, that Poland will, will undertake some actions without enough consulting it with our allies in the West. Exactly like the visit in Kiev, as far as we know, as we know wasn't consulted. 
this is a part that worries me, but also I think it calls for some explanation. It was also visible in your questions to some extent, because how is it possible that a government that used to be nationalist and anti-refugee suddenly behaves this way, suddenly opens the border, suddenly wants to meet Mr. Zelensky and suddenly wants to, to fight Putin? I think the only reasonable explanation for that is that the anti-Russian sentiment uh, in Poland, connected with the conscience that the that that, that our experience of, of of Russia, Russia's politics, Russia's history is very deep and very old, that we should play some very active role. And this is exactly what I am seeing in the in the law and justice uh, behavior. Um, so 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 they are very actively anti-Russian. Russian. They are probably um, so anti-Russian that they are capable of of undertaking some actions that will be not consulted with the Western allies, and and perhaps not enough reflected on. Uh, thank you for that great answer, uh, Carolina. Uh, Kelly, you've been waiting patiently uh, since we literally opened the doors of this room uh, over an hour ago. Uh, you're up next. Thanks, Royfield, um, and thanks for being here, Carolina. And this question's for you or anyone else who may have an opinion or an answer to it. But um, considering what's happening in Poland and with the refugees and how this will obviously have long-term effects, it's destabilizing in, in many ways. Will NATO's less direct approach to to this invasion by Russia because you Ukraine is not part of NATO. Will this change the way that Poland sees their own relationship within NATO? Or do you think, does anyone think that uh, NATO will possibly change its approach to what they consider a threat to one of the countries within the organization? So I think that uh, that there are a lot of more ways of reacting to this uh, war than only entering Ukraine by NATO and only um, bringing the Article 5 into force. So, for example, there are already sanctions, but there could be more sanctions. The sanctions could be more severe. Some weapons are being sent to Ukraine, but perhaps one can send more, more, more weapons. So, so I do believe that, that NATO will be very reluctant to, to enter this war actively. It's, it's because of the certain conviction and a collective fear of the West. I spoke a lot about the collective fears of the East, but the collective fear of the West is the World War III. And I think one has to listen to this fear because it's a very reasonable fear. Frank Lai. So that's a Frank Social Scientist from Berlin, Germany. I'm really glad that we have you on this platform, Professor Vigora. We've been a little uh, week, uh, I would say, on the EU side of things on this app. So I have a question complex on the possibilities of Putin's identity politics in Poland, as he's targeting EU solidarity and cohesion in a variety of ways. And you mentioned Solidarność already. So uh, what I've seen over the last 20 years, since he appeared in the German Bundestag, He's uh, abusing the Slavic identity as an excuse, as he refers to the Kiev Rus, which is actually a bit different than the centralism from Moscow later on. He's appealing to, to the West with a Christian reference. 
He's threatening countries from the Warsaw Pact. He's using his uh, economic leverage against not only Ukraine. His oligarch system reminds me of 1800s feudalism. He's shooting and poisoning several politicians throughout Europe and uh, even uh, civil air traffic and stuff like that. So uh, what has been the acceptance of Putin before 2014 in Poland and before this invasion? Is there any basis that can stand Putin's actions right now? That's a great question. I do believe that there was some acceptance of Putin in the early 2000s. You mentioned the, the Vladimir Putin's speech in the Bundestag, followed by a standing ovation, by the way. This is paradoxical because it happened in 2001, and in 2000 was the first very cruel decisions uh, in, of, of Putin in Chechnya. So Putin, for the first years after 2000, after him gaining the power in Russia, was still considered a European leader. European not because of the geography, but because of the values. I do believe that uh, that still in 2007, still in 2010 even, as the rhetoric of Putin was still the rhetoric of uh, European values and democracy, he was still uh, widely uh, accepted uh, basically all over the European Union, not only in Poland. And I think the first uh, changes um, were in my country connected with the with the Orange Revolution in Ukraine. So this was the first time when Mr. Yushchenko, as you remember, was poisoned, uh, and many of the traces led to to Russia. Uh, and, and Poles were very active in this, in this Orange Revolution. They were very supportive. And then Euromaidan, 2013-2014, uh, with, uh, with the Ukrainian president, Mr. Yanukovych, fleeing to Russia after using violence uh, towards the crowd uh, in Euromaidan. I think this, what has happened, and then Crimea annexation, has changed the attitude towards Putin uh, very deeply in my country. But you have to remember that it all was connected with a deep change of Putin's behavior. He stopped playing a Democrat, for example. He stopped playing a person that shares the same, the same values. He launched a, a whole array of arguments about what you said, Russian identity, the big um, collapse of the Soviet Union as the biggest defeat in Russian history, a certain type of Russian nationalistic identity. The, the stronger this rhetoric was, the more skepticism also in, in, in countries outside Russia. Nomad, you have the honor of being uh, the last person to ask a question to Carolina on the stage. Just one point though, Nomad, please. Sure, and I'll make it very brief. Thank you so much for this forum and thank you, Carolina, for your presence here. I come from the background where I grew up in Kenya and there was a time we had to take in um, refugees from Somalia. So just looking at the, at the um, demographics of people who are coming 
the women and children. Um, do you do you see these um, remaining as as such, or do you see some men eventually joining the group? Um, and then, secondly, it's just are there any language? barriers that are impacting the whole um, infrastructure setup to be able to welcome um, this huge amount of, of refugees that are coming into Poland. Thank you for letting me speak. Thank you so much, Nomad. So as for the, your first question, uh, as, uh, as it was previously said in this podcast, um, men um, up to 60 uh, are having called by President Zawinski to uh, to stay and they are mobilized, uh, but so, so they are not coming. You might expect though that if this conflict somehow ends this way or another, many of the people who came to Poland, to Germany, to other European countries, they won't be going immediately back because many of them do not have any place to go back. So probably then some of the, at least some of the men will join their families that is what i would expect this is this is one as for the second language well language is is very similar between polish and ukrainian are very similar 70% of words of vocabulary is actually almost the same so it's it's extremely easy to learn in both ways you need basically 3 to 6 months to master uh, th this language and we have been seeing this in Poland they they learned fluent Polish within three to six months so this is perhaps one of the reasons for which um, uh, how uh, almost a million uh, of Ukrainians started to work in Poland before this invasion and uh, and now the families uh, of many of them are are joining because the networking is already in in my country of Ukrainians that can help their families. Even, I must say, I saw when I was coming on a train back to Warsaw uh, on Sunday, I saw that there are even families that decided, saw, saw Germany, saw Berlin, and decided to go back to Poland, uh, probably because of the language. Because the language uh, German is so so profoundly different than, than Polish and Ukrainian. And Polish and Ukraine are so similar. Um, so there, there you go. We had uh, Professor Caroline Vigora in Warsaw giving us the Polish view of the Ukrainian war, the, the invasion started by Putin's Russia. We are going to continue uh, to suspend our normal output, which is just to look at US and UK politics for the foreseeable future. Maybe what we will do is look at the US and the UK response to to the war and, 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 and how it's actually developing. But expect us to take a more of a holistic view uh, for, for countries around the world in terms of how they're responding to the crisis. Because there's utterly no point this podcast trying to do a day-to-day blow-by-blow account of um, which, uh, Russian thrusts and, and cities that have been captured or not and the heroic Ukrainian defence. But what we can do is take half a step back and, and really analyse how the world is actually looking at this strategy. What you can do, good listener, and I always say there's 5,000 of you that download the podcast every time I put out an episode, is please write us um, a review 
on Apple iTunes. But then also, if you are listening to the podcast, why don't you download the Clubhouse app so then you can actually join the audience and be part of the live podcast recording where you can also then ask us uh, a question or ask the guest a question. That's an important way that not only being a passive listener, you can be an active listener by being uh, a part of the show. So download the Clubhouse app. When you get onto Clubhouse, then find the Mid-Atlantic Club. Hit that join that then you'll be alerted when we go live for these rooms if you're in the audience become a member of the mid-atlantic club so you will be alerted when we also go live and also give anybody on stage a follow um, i think they've, they've asked great questions i loved uh, david velasco's insight also pavel in Krakow talking about the fact that his home is actually uh, there uh, for for Ukrainian refugees. Uh, Frank Lai uh, asked some great questions uh, from a European perspective. Dr. Dan is always value. Uh, Roman, we really appreciate you and also you, Nomad Jane, and of course, Carolina Vigora. Give them all a follow. Follow the Mid-Atlantic Club. I, I say this at the end of every show. Left to centre politics is right thinking politics, but we don't demonise our right leaning brethren. However, in this regard, I think it's only right and proper that the world shows its um, its anger at this unprovoked attack on a sovereign, independent, proud nation. So, viva um, Ukraine and the Ukrainian resistance, and all of our hearts and minds go to them. Let's put pressure on our elective representatives, wherever we are in the world, that they aid the Ukrainian resistance in any way that is possible. Carolina, thank you for being an excellent guest. Hopefully we'll see you on Mid-Atlantic again soon. Thank you so much for having me. I was really delighted to, to be here. Brilliant. Look after yourselves and look after your loved ones even better. Take care. Bye-bye. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.